Welcome to the Bed Night Lunch Podcast, a podcast where we delve into the unseen history and folklore of Carboneer. For each episode, we invite you to sit down and enjoy a nice bed night lunch while we take a journey back through history. Now, here are your hosts, Preston Griffin, Caitlin Clark, Caitlin Head, Sarah Clark, and myself, Noah Green. On today's episode of the Bed Night Lunch Podcast, we're going to be discussing a very prominent family in Carboneer's history. So the Rourke's are the main focus of many of the exhibits that we have here in Carboneer, and obviously the main focus of the, the Rourke store down here on Water Street. So I know Preston and I haven't actually worked down at the Rogue store, but our two Caitlin's and Sarah, you guys have, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. I've been working for the past three years, like with the museums. This is my first year now with the museum. Right. <laughs> and Caitlin has been there like, what, six years or five years or something? Yeah, I've been there forever. She's been there for the longest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is my uh, third year working as well, but I only worked at the work twice. So. Right. Okay, so you guys would definitely say you've, you've been encompassed in the, the whole history of the works for a while now, right? Definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I guess we'll just dive right into it and you guys can give us a bit of history on the works for someone who has no clue who they are. Um, so John Rourke came over from County Athol in Ireland in 1824, just the age of 17. Uh, he came here to work as an apprentice clerk in the Carboneer firm of Bennett and Ridley. Uh, so William Bennett was his uncle and Thomas Ridley was his cousin. Uh, so John stayed as an associate of Bennett and Ridley for several years after he arrived here in Newfoundland. Uh, he originally began, he eventually began to manage the firm's affairs in Adams Cove. Uh, during this time, he married the daughter of a Carboneer merchant, Mary Took, and he returned to Carboneer. In 1838, Rourke acquired the old Slade Nelson premises on Water Street. Uh, he'd kind of been keeping an eye on this land for some time and when it went up for sale he left on it immediately. Um, after this he had some help from his mother-in-law Aunt Tuke, who was a bit of a businesswoman for her time. So she helped him purchase and register a 100 ton vessel, the Elizabeth, uh, which began his venture into the fishing industry. Okay. So can one of you guys elaborate a little bit on what you mean by his entrance into the fishery? So the company had fishing rooms and these fishing rooms were stationed at the St. Francis Harbor and the Venison Island in Labrador. And this was basically where they would supply all types of fish such as codfish and salmon and herring and they would supply them for every spring. So as his business grew, Rourke's need for storage also grew. So in 1874, he expanded his holdings and uh, constructed two structures on Water Street. These are directly across from the stone house. Um, one of them, of course, is no longer there anymore, but uh, we still have one standing. So he constructed these to store much of the bulk goods that his firm sold to the fishing families that were under their employ. So the East store was stocked mainly with foodstuffs. So that was like things like salt pork and salt beef, as well as flour. The West Store uh, was the place to go for any Carboneer resident that wanted to have molasses kegs filled. Hmm. This was often referred to as the molasses store. It's also a storehouse for building materials such as glass and cement, as well as other supplies such as iron and lime. So the first and second floors of each store were used primarily for bulk storage. The third floor of the East Building served as a twine loft. So this is where fishermen would knit twine for nets. And the third floor of the West Store, which is the one that's still stands today was a sailmaker's loft. We actually have a little sailmaker's kit in the workstore museum today. Hmm. Uh, and I, I know a little bit earlier you mentioned the stone house. I was wondering if we could elaborate on that just for someone. Mm -hmm. No idea what that is here in Carbonate. 
Um, so the stone house originally served as John Rourke's store and home. Originally it was built from wood, but uh, back in this time a lot of things burnt down, uh, including uh, John Rourke's original premises. So when he rebuilt it, he decided to build it out of stone because he didn't really want to go through that again. Mm. So the first floor of the stone house would have been um, the store, so that's where people would go to shop and get their uh, wares and things. The second floor would have been John's home, his wife and his family, of course. And the third floor would have been the servants' quarters. Right. So today, now, that building is the Stone Drug Restaurant. Great burgers, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and just to get back to the stores a little bit, um, they were at, there was actually two buildings. Uh, there's only one standing there now. They were made using rosebud nails, and they had great structural integrity because of their lock and key construction and their ship's knees. Right, okay. Um, so speaking of that, I mentioned fires earlier. The East Store actually burned down in 1916, and one of the reasons why it was able to uh, be blown down in a storm uh, in the late 90s was because of the fact that they had to rebuild this store so quickly and it didn't have the same structural integrity as the West Store did. Uh, like Caitlin said, they built it with ship's knees, so it's basically built the same way as a boat would have been built. So. Okay. It's funny to think historically buildings on Water Street just have not had a good time between no. fires <laughs> and <laughs> losing roofs. It's just not. Yeah, it's a lot of fires and a lot of being blown off with wind. <laughs> <laughs> So if you happen to drive by the Worcester Museum, the parking lot that's there used to be the old shipyard, and that was owned by shipbuilder Michael Kearney and his partner Richard Horwood. And a forge was created there, and during their time at the shipyard, that's where they also created rosebud nails. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, so they actually kind of think, uh, Caitlin mentioned earlier that the building was built like ships. They actually think that some of the shipbuilders that John Rourke employed at the shipyard might have had a hand in constructing the stores. So I think we've discussed lots about uh, the architectural sides and the business part of his life, but can we discuss a little bit, you know, the more personal and the, the family aspect of his life? Yeah, so John actually had a lot of children with his wife, Mary. He was very concerned with his legacy and he wanted to have his sons take over his business. However, he didn't have much luck with this. His eldest son, Edward, was very set on becoming a ship's captain. And so that's what he did. He captained a lot of ships for the family business. His second oldest son was a bit like John himself in that he wanted to kind of branch off on his own. So when he was uh, around 17, he went to California for the gold rush. Unfortunately, the Rourke's never heard from uh, Charles again after that. And I do think that that story about Charles is really interesting, but I just want to give some context to the story by talking a little bit about uh, the time period that this was. Uh, so this was during the California Gold Rush. Um, so the California Gold Rush took place in 1848 to 1855. Uh, so it would have been somewhere in the mid-1800s when uh, Charles left Newfoundland for California. Okay, yeah, and I, I think that, that makes the whole story even a little bit more interesting about Charles. And I, I think before we started recording, we actually sat around and we had that discussion about how there are theories about what happened to Charles after he left and went to California. And I think one, what was it, there was a, a theory about him having a firm? So last summer we actually, um, we think we found out that uh, Charles had settled in California and he had a fruit farm there and he lived out his whole life there, but unfortunately still never got back into contact with his uh, father and mother. 
which I think is really interesting. So I think um, for anyone that had worked at the museum for some time, either were like years where we didn't know what happened to Charles, I kind of always assumed he went to California and ran into some trouble mm. and things went astray. But it's nice to know that he kind of probably, hopefully, had like a nice peaceful life there on a fruit farm. Yeah, I think it's definitely interesting too that over your time, like you've worked with the uh, museum, what is it, six years? Yeah, this is my sixth summer now. Like, I, I find it incredible that there's still progression made with the history. Like at one point that was completely up in the air for you and now maybe you have a, a better idea what might have happened. I, I like to see that, that progression of history. Yeah, especially one of my favorite parts is that I come back each summer and there's always something new to be learned. Definitely, no, that's, it's really incredible that we, we get to see it unfold. And even like this project in particular, we're, we're discussing all these different pieces of Carbonier's history and like the Rourke family was a huge episode. Mm -hmm. uh, but we get to see how that progresses and we find new information and learn new things that we didn't even know before. And I really hope that in the future we can get to know more, a bit more about his daughters too. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. Mm -hmm. So kind of steering the conversation back towards uh, the store and the fact that John really wanted to pass the store on to his sons. He did eventually do that, so his sons John II and James joined the firm in 1880 and eventually took over the business uh, when John himself passed away in 1896. So after John's death, uh, C.T. Bennett of Bristol, who was John Sr.'s old employer, uh, actually maintained a connection with the Rourke brothers and uh, stayed on as their agent. So he handled all the import and exports to Britain and uh, various other countries. And uh, James died in 1918. Uh, and conveniently, this was around the same time that stuff started to change for the firm. So, uh, for instance, uh, there was a couple of coincidental occurrences. So, in 1919, uh, C.T. Bennett's business unfortunately closed, and uh, two of the firm's uh, vessels actually sunk, which were the Caledora and the Olinda. So, John Works uh, Company had to withdraw from the export and import business around this time opting instead to sell fish and buy goods from St. John's firms. So uh, one of these firms was A.S. Randall, and uh, this change could maybe be anticipated for some time because between the years of 1896 and 1920, the works only made purchases of two vessels, one in 1902 and the second in 1917. So despite James unfortunately passing away, business definitely still remained a family business. By 1920, uh, James's son, sons had joined their uncle John in the firm. So sometime after James's death, the Rourke's um, established a separate operation known as the Rourke Fish and Coal Company. So this specialized in the sale of coal as well as Labrador cured codfish and fresh and pickled salmon. So John Rourke II died in 1929. Following this, John and James Jr. incorporated John Rourke and Sons Limited. The incorporation documents clearly stated that the assets of the Rourke Fish and Coal Company Limited were to be excluded from John Rourke and Sons Limited. So John Rourke and Sons Limited continued to operate the store at Water Street Carbonier until 1980. The firm then liquidated its assets in 1981. This was in large part due to the fact that the mall had been built in Carbonier at this time and basically these stores on Water Street kind of no longer needed as these big department stores to kind of push them out a little bit, but the works had a, had a, a over 140 year history here in Urban Air, and their legacy still lasts today. I know it's astounding to see that we, we still have 
the I don't even know if I can use the word remnants because of how well that building is actually preserved. Yeah, it's so well preserved. It stood the test of time for sure, despite its age. I find it really cool how it's all original. Yeah. Yeah. Like having all the original wood, everything like that. Like nothing needed to be fixed. That just shows how much. Yeah, the only things that they had preserved. to do to the building were add in the two offices and the two bathrooms in order to convert it into a museum. I think that's also really just a testament to the quality of the architecture at the time. Like, yeah. the way things were built back then in comparison to now, it's astounding. Well, I mean, if you go into the Rorkstar Museum, it's just one of the first things people notice is how the building is built. Mm. So, like, the ship's knees, the rosebud nails, and all the wood uh, came, some of it came from Newfoundland. You can just see how, like, massive these trees were, so it's all, like, amazing quality building materials. And we actually have, like, a lock and key that you can see as soon as you walk in, mm -hmm. and everyone notices it. It's, like, yeah. pretty amazing. It's really big. What, what do you mean by that? Um, so the lock and key construction. Yeah. Um, it basically means that the pieces kind of fit together perfectly and lock yeah. into it. It's like a puzzle. So, like, a, like nailless architecture? Yeah. Or are they yeah. still... Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Okay. There are nails in the building, of course, but the lock and key uh, kind of just adds to that. I it's think. like a nail, yeah. It just fits together. That's definitely really interesting. Yeah, and you probably don't see that so much anymore. No. Yeah. It's also really interesting, like how we said it's built like a boat. So if you're in the building mm. on like a windy day or something, it sounds like you're on a ship. Yeah, I've I've noticed that's it's jarring. Like it's it's weird to be in there. And that's one of the first things that I noticed when I first started working there, and I find it amazing. Like it's so cool. They yeah. just it literally creaks back and forth, just like old shit. There yeah. there's an, like an odd amount of life in that building for such yeah, an old. There's still so place. much character in the building. Definitely. It has so much life to it still. So. To think about it now, as much as we discussed his life and the, the life of the Rourke's, we haven't really talked about much about how that building's being used now, which is something like where we're, we are heavily involved with, right? Yeah. Um, so the building now is being used as a museum, of course, and we're so incredibly fortunate that we're able to have uh, the building itself preserved so well. But so many of the artifacts in the building uh, came from like John Rourke's family and from his store and our original to that building. Mm. A lot came from the stone house as well, like Caitlin said, the store. Yes, yeah, so we actually have this filing cabinet, which is like an old-fashioned wooden filing cabinet. And if you uh, look inside it, we still have some of his paper with his like stamp on it, oh. saying his name and stuff. Right, we do have a lot of artifacts over there, and I, I think one of the ones I find the most interesting is that safe. Uh, and there's actually, there's a little bit of a story behind that because it was locked for the longest time and there was actually a, uh, an eight-year-old boy uh, who actually opened the safe for the first time. Apparently he, he just Googled it to find out how to crack a safe. Yeah, he'd come into the museum and he was super fascinated by the safe. Basically he thought there was probably like money or treasure or something inside and so he went home and did some research and he came back and unlocked it pretty quickly which is pretty... It's funny that he was the first one to think of that. <laughs> yeah, you would think some other people would have decided to research it. So I would say my favorite part of the work museum would be the loft, and that's on the second floor of the museum. And what I find really interesting is the chairs that are there, because um, those chairs are made from the same wood that came from the second building that, that blew down. 
and that's what I found really interesting about the museum. Yeah, I think the loft is really interesting too because for a, a building that we've mostly kept specifically just to uh, highlight the exhibits that we have and that history, the loft is kind of more just a um, a cultural exhibit yeah. if anything. It's like we've used it a lot over the summer uh, for different musical talents and everything and even I, I use the word musical talent very lightly because they also <laughs> let me play there once or twice. So. <laughs> It's a, it's a really interesting spot, and it's a really cool place to play. Like, I, I don't know how many people can say that they played in museums, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely an interesting thing to be able to say. No, I do, I do really enjoy the loft. Yeah, it's a really nice place, and we're very lucky to have this, to do the little events we do in our bed night lunch each Friday night. Mm. I, I still remember one summer we turned it into this very airy... Um, like haunted, haunted building kind of thing oh, for yes, the for the yeah. ghost story night. Yeah, our ghost story night is definitely uh, one of the highlights of the summer, I think, and it's a great space mm. for doing that because you can make it really airy and creepy. Yeah, I just I really love how, although the building is just such a piece of history and it's so old that we we managed to keep it lively. And with everybody working there, like you cannot say during the summer it wasn't lively with everyone working there and the staff and everyone coming through. It was just, it's such a, a animated place to be. Yeah, I think sometimes you go to a museum that's been converted from an old building and it feels very much so like it's a piece of history. There's no life there. Mm. Uh, but you come into the Rourke and I think we do a really good job of keeping it uh, alive to this day. It's definitely a very lively place to be in my opinion. And we like to think that the exhibit does a good job of keeping John's legacy alive and preserving um, the kind of influence that he had on Carboneer. Mm. Uh, so we like to hope that um, he'd be content with how the museum is run and what we do there. I like to think so. <laughs> I, I feel like for someone who could walk in that museum and have no idea about the Rourke family or about Carboneer's history, it's kind of, it is a, a really nice delve into it. Because the way the information is presented and the way that the staff uh, talks to you, it's like, it's a friendly kind of place. It's not this cold, just historical, written down and detached, like apathetic kind of layout. It's a very friendly, inviting, almost warm place, I'd say, for, for what it is. Yeah, I think it's a very welcoming place and we do hopefully a really good job of uh, passing that knowledge on to any visitors that come in and aren't familiar yeah. uh, with the area's history. Well, I mean, and especially our, our lovely staff, we're all very welcoming, except for me, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you know, it just occurred to me that we've been sat here talking about the museum and we are, we're a little bit too familiar with it, but Preston here is completely in the dark about it. But okay, obviously, you've been there, right? Have you ever visited? Yes, I've been to work uh, once or twice. Have you ever gotten the, the guided tours or you just... Uh, I've never gotten the guided tour. But uh, it is, like you said, a very welcoming environment. Yeah. It's like you walk in, it, as we also said before, the building is very well preserved, so it's almost like taking you back through history right. in terms of the way that like, you understand like, how things worked and how it was built. Right, it's not, it's not a, like an intense amount of information, but it's, it's still informative. No, I am really glad that is the impression we give. And I think we actually are approaching the end of our time for today, so to finish up, I think uh, we'll have our segment, Fun Facts with Caitlin, and I'll let you take it away. So, fun fact for today is if you've ever noticed uh, the headstone that's at the front of the rock when you first walk in, 
um, that belonged to one of John's ancestors. Cordelia actually ordered it for her father-in-law, and when it was received, uh, the top of the headstone was actually cracked off, so they decided not to use it, and now it's placed at the Rourke uh, mm. as sort of a memory. I've actually I've seen that so much, and I never knew what that was about before now. That is cool actually story. really interesting. Yeah, they actually ended up ordering a second one, and that's the one that's in the graveyard, like, to this day. Right, okay. Yeah. I don't know, that's really cool. And I, I think as we approach even further the end of our podcast, I'll hand it off to my co-host, Caitlin Clark, for our closing remarks. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us this week on the Midnight Lunch Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more from us, be sure to keep an eye on the Town of Carbonara Facebook page and all of our other social media. I have been Caitlin Clark. I've been Preston Griffin. I've been Noah Green. I've been Sarah Clark. And I've been Caitlin Head. And this is the Midnight Lunch Podcast. Let's start down to the Rourke store for a keg of molasses.